stories. My name is James Drupney. Today, I give you a different telling stories. I'm slightly sad at telling stories. Today is the story of Harley Race, one of the greatest NWA heavyweight champions of all time, the man who set the tone in the 1970s and the 1980s for hard work and professionalism in pro wrestling. Now this time, I didn't have an old piece to go back on. I'd not written anything about Harley. So this is a brand new piece that I wrote specifically for this show. Scripted and directed in memory of one of the greatest wrestlers that ever lived. Introducing your main event of the evening. Two out of three fall with a 60 minute time limit for the heavyweight championship of the world. 245-pound world's heavyweight champion from Kansas City, Missouri, Harley Race. Harley Race passed away on August the 1st, 2019, after his fight with lung cancer came to an abrupt end. He was 76 years old. The Missouri native bridged the gap between the early days of pro wrestling as an entertainment in the U.S. and the modern TV era. A nine times world champion, eight of them NWA titles. He's one of the biggest draws in wrestling for a decade. There cannot, and there will never be, another man like Harley Race. Born in Quitman, Missouri, Race learned the trade as a boy from the original Sabisco family, Stanislaw and Vladek. Before that, he had suffered and made a full recovery from polio. In the pre-vaccination days, it was a common ailment of children, but showing an incredible natural toughness which would be replied upon again and again in his career, he recovered. Expelled from school in his late teens, he became a full-time pro wrestler after the need to make a living became paramount. He began as a driver for St. Joseph promoter Gus Carros, hired as an odd job man around his promotion, and the jobs included driving the 800 pounds Happy Humphrey where he needed to be. The local veterans polished and honed the young man until he was ready for something bigger. He moved to the National Territory and struck up a tag team with John Long, renaming himself Jack Long as a storyline brother. Whilst in Nashville, he would become quite the attraction and was seen as a rising star in the business. Married with a baby on the way, tragedy stuck when Race was involved in a car accident. His wife Vivian Louise Jones was killed instantly. He also nearly lost his leg, but as Karras rushed to the hospital and demanded his leg be treated without an amputation. His comeback from such a mentally draining and physically debilitating injury was incredible. Having made a miraculous full recovery, he moved into different territories, but always as a character or a gimmick. His father pointed out to him that he shouldn't be working so hard to make someone else famous. From then on, he was Harley Race, and things clicked into place. He toured Japan and wrestled Giant Baba for the first time under the JWA banner. The two would become firm friends. He moved into the AWA in North America, sparking a tag team with Larry the Axe Hennig. Calling themselves Pretty Boy Larry and Handsome Harley, the pair were, in were an instant heel hit. When they ran into the Crusher and Bruiser, the ultimate working-class babyface team, it was a match made in heaven. For five years between 1965 and 1970, Race and Hennig would be the thorn in the side of the tag team division. Hennig would depart in 1968 after a storyline broken leg, he needed rest after years of working flat out, and Race would have to carry the spotlight with pick-up partners. He did so with aplomb, and was long considered a rival to the sitting champion, Vern Gagne. Their three AWA tag titles would put Race in the spotlight, a place he seemingly belonged and would be determined to keep himself in. In 1970, he would move on to the NWA territories once more. Working at Missouri once more under Sam Mushnick, the perennial president of the NWA, Mushnick was building stars with his wrestling from the Chase TV show. It had links of every office of note around the world, and while the AWA had commanded huge crowds in the Midwest, St. Louis was the home of big-time wrestling. The NWA was an international powerhouse, and the opportunity to learn did not pass race by. 
Having picked up titles in Missouri, the NWA state title there, and the mid-Atlantic version of the US Heavyweight Championship for Jim Crockett promotions, he was clearly being groomed for big things. Both belts would be seen as important stepping stones to the world title, largely thanks to Race's efforts. After three years of hard graft, he was finally given the opportunity to challenge for the NWA World's Championship. Due to some backroom shenanigans between Amarillo promoter Dory Funk Sr., father of the champion Dory Funk Jr., Race was told to take the title come what may against the veteran Texan technician. Thankfully, Race's shoot experience and street ball toughness was not needed as they agreed to finish and Race would make his first reign as the NWA champion in what was seen as a stunning upset. With the belt on Race, Dory Sr. had no objections to the title dropping to the originally planned man for the job, Jack Briscoe. The short stint as champion would begin his almost omnipresent association with the title over the next decade. Jack Briscoe, it turned out, was not the man for the long-term job. While an exemplary wrestler, a pure white meat babyface at the time, he couldn't hack the impossibly long days, road trips and public appearances around the world. Briscoe would lose the title to Giant Babber in December of 74, and then finally to Terry Funk at Miami Beach a year and a day later. Briscoe would walk straight out of the building to a road bridge and throw his wristwatch in the Miami River. Funk was the man now, and Race reignited his 60s feud with the Texan, which had filled houses in the southeast back in the early 60s. He would win the belt back in Toronto, with an Indian deathlock in 1977. Race entered his imperious phase then. The legend of Harley began as he took up a bruising schedule. A locker room leader wherever he went, he became the epitome of wrestling professionalism. When CM Punk took the WWE title in 2012 and had the longest reign of the modern era, he built a lot of what his reign was about around how Harley had dealt with being champion. What would Harley do became his mantra. Harley would do his level best to elevate the local champions he was defending against and ensure the best representation of the business that he could. While a hard partier in his day, he would from time to time ensure that nothing got that far out of hand, put an end to locker room feuds the hard way if needed, and essentially took the job of being NWA champion very seriously indeed. He bought into the Kansas City territory and set many careers in motion. He would lose the title to Giant Babak on all Japan tours at his own suggestion without NWA board's knowledge, but they were fine with whatever Harley did. He was far too valuable to made unhappy. He'd lose the title to up-and-comer Dusty Rhodes, establishing him as an international star. Rhodes would in turn drop it to Ric Flair. Flair's first title reign wasn't quite right, even Rick admitted that. It needed something to push him over the edge. When Flair lost the belt to race in 1983, there was an opportunity to build Flair as the next generation champion. Understanding his days at the top were numbered and wanted to set the business up for the next decade, race began an angle with Jim Crockett promotions that blew everything else in wrestling away. Determined not to lose the belt again to Flair, Race put up a $25,000 bounty to any man who could keep Flair out of wrestling. It built a months-long feud that was a build-up to the first Starcade main event. The NWA title in a steel cage for the first time. When Bob Orton Jr. and Dirty Dick Slater attacked Flair and broke his neck, the fans of the Carolinas were incensed. It led to the blow-off match on closed-circuit TV that launched Crockett Promotions nationwide. Signaled the passing of the torch as power base in the NWA moved from St. Louis to Charlotte and signaled the end of Race's long-term association with the NWA. He would be Flair's policeman for a while, ensuring that his passage into the main event limelight was a smooth one and ensuring that no one took anything on that they shouldn't. But he was seeing the writing on the wall as far as the NWA was concerned and in his hometown of Kansas City, he was in the thick of a promotional war with the WWF. Having resorted to vigilante tactics to keep Vince McMahon Jr. at bay, he finally gave up and signed a deal with the WWF. Funnily enough, it was not his first contract offer. Reportedly, McMahon had invited Race to dinner sometime before the Starcade main event in 1983 
and begged him to sign with the then WWF and basically to no-show his match with Flair. However, Harley was a man of his word and he finished his commitments to the NWA. Once he did sign on with the New York office, he was on a roller coaster ride of international experiences. The first King of the Ring tournament was put together with him in mind to get over his superior wrestling ability. He would most famously, though, feud with the Junkyard Dog, ending their feud at WrestleMania 3 with a roll-up win, a somewhat disappointing win at that, especially in a match with two powerhouse draws of the Territory era. The Territories were dying, though, and with them it seemed the will of Race's body went too. He would eventually be forced out by injury when wrestling Hulk Hogan and trying his swan dough headbutt off the apron through a table. The move he invented, but deeply regretted, considering the careers and lives it had shortened. He would be out until early 1989, and would try and gain back his king title from Haku, who Bobby Heenan had crowned in his place. However, he was done with the WWE. He would work out his career in his old haunts of the AWA, Puerto Rico and WCW, as Cockett Promotions would become. But in 1991, he ended his life as a full-time active wrestler, but he would remain attached to the business for the rest of his life. He moved on to WCW and became a manager to Lex Luger, and later Vader as well as passing on his invaluable knowledge to the locker room. Another car accident in 1995 stopped his managerial career as he was no longer able to take bumps. He returned to work as a promoter. He would open a wrestling school and a promotion to go with it, World League Wrestling, that would affiliate with Noah and produce such top talents as Tommaso Ciampa and Takeshi Morishima. Harley Race was just not a professional wrestler. He was professional wrestling. While he may not have been the best pure worker, he was a spine-chilling promo and the most reliable producer of his era. Able to lure at the box office and with a wrestling IQ that far outstripped his contemporaries, his willingness to bump for his opponents led to health issues later in life, but that sense of devotion to the business, to his co-workers, his sense of responsibility to the profession and his fellow professionals mark him out as one of the greatest of all time. Rest easy, champ. And that is the story of Harley Race. Thank you for listening to Tell His Stories today. You can find us on Twitter at Troopany Show. You can find us on Facebook, The Troopany Show. And you can find us on Patreon, where you can keep us free forever for everyone. Music is by Sheriff Lone Star and the Deputies of Heartbreak. You can find them at Bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lone Star. <laughs>